So upon reading this text, I have one question to ask you this morning. Are you truly saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And I, when I ask that question, I mean, are you really, are you really saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? How do you know whether you're saved? How can you know whether you're saved? And the only reason I ask this question is because of the rather alarming words of Jesus in our text this morning. Maybe you caught them, maybe you didn't, but look at them again in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that not a jolt? Is that not a wake-up call to the great number of slumbering, apathetic, earthly-minded claimants to faith, to saving faith in Jesus? To those who watch the YouTube feeds of different churches all over the place? To those who talk a good game? To those who are involved in the life of the body? Who know their doctrine and their theology? Is it not a wake-up call to those who've been baptized? Who take communion? Who cry out, Lord, Lord! But may one day be exposed as a false convert. Who may one day be exposed as a person who possessed a counterfeit faith. Is that you? Could that be you? Will that be you? Are you one of these? That's where this text leads us this morning, to ask that question. Because make no mistake about it, there is a profession of faith, a, a profession of faith in Jesus that does not lead to eternal life. You see it, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be sure, true, genuine, saving faith takes hold of God's grace, and when God's grace is truly taken hold of, it does result in eternal life and true salvation. But there is also a type of profession in Jesus, a type of belief in Jesus that does not lead to eternal life. And there are many who are deceived and who are deluded by the world, who are deceived and deluded by the enemy, who are deceived and deluded by their own flesh into thinking that they are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, who are not. There are a number who will, on the great day of judgment, be shocked to learn that they were never included in Christ's family. When Christ himself declares those words in verse 23 that I never knew you. On that day, there are going to be many who will realize to their great shame, to their immense despair, to their mourning, their weeping, and their terror that the faith they professed was a counterfeit, that it wasn't real. It wasn't true. It wasn't saving. Their so-called faith was nothing more than a masquerade. It was nothing more than a pretend trust with no saving value. And so the question goes out to you again. Because there is nothing more important than knowing the answer to this question. This is the most monumental question you will ever answer in your entire life. This is the question we should all be completely honest with ourselves about because there is nothing more important. 
Is your profession of faith in Christ a real, true, genuine, saving profession? Or is it a counterfeit? Because look at the text again. Simply saying, Lord, Lord, is apparently not enough, is it? Do you see that? And note, the fact that Lord is repeated twice indicates that this, this profession is a zealous and emotionally charged profession. It makes clear that this is an emphatic declaration that Jesus is in fact Lord. See, there are many who know enough to make accurate pronouncements about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done, who both know and believe correct things about him. But is intellectual assent enough? No, it is not. You see, one can make a confession, one can cry out, Lord, Lord, but not actually turn to Jesus. One can cry out, Lord, Lord, without actually possessing a robust faith in Jesus. Jesus himself, when a scribe came to him, questioning him about, questioning him about what is the most important commandment, Jesus didn't answer, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Nor did he answer, love the Lord your God with a portion of your heart or with a part of your soul, a little bit of your mind and some of your strength. No, Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now notice, this is Mark twelve twenty nine. notice the initial statement there. Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is it enough to simply intellectually believe that statement? Is it enough to simply confess that this is true? The Lord our God is one. Scripture gives us the answer to this question. Scripture is abundantly clear about the answer to this question. James, speaking to this very issue argued that a faith that remains mere words and mere confessions but does not issue in increased love for, imitation of, and obedience to Christ is not a genuine faith but is indeed a counterfeit. Simple recognition of the facts, even simple belief in the facts does not constitute a true and saving faith because, as James said, even the demons do that. Even the demons possess, even the demons confess and believe the facts. They know exactly who Jesus is. They know that Jesus is Lord and they believe that God is one. The demons know their doctrine better than any of us do. And they shudder at the truth of it. Hear what James wrote in 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the implied question here is, the demons believe the truth, but are they saved? And the answer is, no. No, they are not. The demons know who Christ is. The demons know that God is one, meaning they know that Christ is Lord. They know that Jesus is God come in the flesh, and they make their knowledge of this fact clear throughout the Gospels. A couple of examples. 
Jesus, on one occasion, while teaching in the synagogue, was confronted by a man with an unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1. And that demon, or that demonic spirit, cried out, saying, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The demons know who Jesus is, and they confess it. And Luke as Jesus was healing the crowds, recounts the scene of that healing ministry. It says this in chapter 4. When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. And Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So you see, the demons know the truth. They know who Christ is. They know his power. They are aware of his true identity. And they even declare it during the life and ministry of Jesus. And yet, they will all be thrown into the lake of fire that has been prepared for them. Because while they know, while they believe, while they confess, they remain demons. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All of this to say, in agreement with James, that there is a type of belief, a type of confession that will not save you. There's a type of belief that is possessed by the demons. It will not save. It does not save. It cannot save. But sadly... There are a number of people who populate the visible church of Christ throughout the world whose confession and whose belief is quite similar to and in many ways overlaps with the uh, belief that characterizes the demonic realm. Could that be you? They know who Christ is. They know enough about God's word. You've heard the gospel, you claim to believe it, but your belief is not genuine. Could that be you? Are you one of those who, while knowing and asserting the truth of the gospel, while declaring the facts of the gospel to be true, find that Jesus impacts your life very little? Perhaps maybe you attend a few church services during the year. Perhaps you throw up a prayer here and there when the goings of life get really tough. Maybe if you're in the right situation, the right circumstance with the right people, you might talk a little bit about Jesus for a few minutes with uh, like-minded friends and family. But for the most part, Jesus is not the primary concern of your life. In fact, Jesus is not even the secondary concern of your life. He's not even the tertiary affection of your heart. And this is the key. As James continued in the very next verse, do you want to be shown, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There's the key. True salvation is secured 
as God dispenses his grace upon the one who comes to him in genuine faith and trust. However, that true faith will by necessity, as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the one with true genuine faith, result in or issue in the works of God. Works of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. True saving faith results in what the Apostle Paul terms in Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. True saving faith will be followed by an increased labor for, a striving for obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Great Commission for the church is, right? Go into all the world making disciples and, Matthew 28, 19, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the consistent theme throughout Scripture. Saving faith is revealed in obedience to Jesus. The Apostle John, for example, wrote in his first epistle that the one who truly believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. So you see, the one who is truly saved is actually born of God. And the one who is born of God keeps the commandments of God. We believe everything that Christ has taught and make every effort to obey everything he has commanded because the Spirit in us compels us in that direction. In other words, genuine faith will strive to live like Christ. Genuine faith will strive to imitate Christ. Genuine faith will strive to obey Christ. This is the fruit of a true and genuine faith. This is the key, a life of obedience, a life bearing the fruit of repentance. As Jesus made clear in verse 21, look at it, doing the will of the Father. You see that? Look again at verse 21 in our text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see that? Who is going to enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So again, I ask you, is your faith real? You see, so far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had just taught one of the most shocking truths, one of the most distressing truths in all of Scripture, that few, few people ever find Few people ever truly walk on the narrow road that leads to life. Does this not hit you like a ton of bricks? Few people ever truly find the narrow gate. Few people ever truly walk the narrow road. Few people will ever truly possess a genuine faith that is proven by obedience and the bearing of good fruit. And how many of us take this seriously? How many of us can actually say we're, we hear and we take this teaching? We hear this gracious warning of our Lord Jesus Christ with the seriousness and the gravity with which it deserves. How many of us 
As we read scripture, hear the exhortation of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians when he said to them, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Examine, meaning prove it. Do what you need to do to know it. How many hear and heed the call of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 to be diligent to confirm your calling and election? How many grasp the passionate pleading of the writer to the Hebrews when he cried out to them in chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." After all, as Jesus taught in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would truly follow me, let him or he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his own soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now this isn't saying you're saved by works. Jesus is here once again revealing that what your what you do proves whether your faith is genuine or counterfeit. So again, let me ask the questions maybe in a simpler and more direct manner. Are you a pretend convert? Are you merely masquerading as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is the Lord Jesus Christ truly the pinnacle affection of your heart? When you stand before him on the final day, will he own you as one of his children? Will he recognize you as one of his family? Will he declare that he has truly loved you, that you have truly trusted in him and truly believed in him? Will you hear those most precious of declarations in Matthew 25, come, You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Or the words from the parable of the talents, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Or will your profession be proven false, leading to Christ's devastating, shattering pronouncement, I never knew you, depart from me. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a subject, counterfeit faith and genuine faith, that my Puritan heroes from yesteryear addressed and touched upon quite frequently. Their preaching was consistently one of rebuking and pleading with those in their churches to think about their state before the Lord, to truly ponder their faith and respond. They consistently touched upon the subject of the hearer's faith. Is it real or is it counterfeit? 
And a few examples of that preaching. Jeremiah Burroughs, the eminent gospel preacher in London during the 1600s, said this. Observe this. When a man's spirit is earthly-minded, carnal, when he is busied about earthly things, wherein earthly advantage comes in, no difficulties will hinder him, no wind or weather. He will rise in cold mornings, go abroad, and do anything in the world. Oh, what difficulties men will endure in storms at sea and hazards here and troubles there. They'll sit up late, they'll rise early, they'll toil themselves and complain of no weariness and difficulties for earthly advantage. They can follow the business of the world from morning to night and never get tired. They can work like a horse and never, be, and never run out of breath. But let them come to spiritual things, to soul business that concerns God and their spiritual condition. In these things, every little difficulty puts them aside. Every little difficulty discourages them. Every molehill is a mountain in their way. I would do spiritual things, but it's hard. It's tedious to rise in the morning, especially in cold winters. It's very hard and difficult to read and to pray. And so he complains of the difficulty of these things. To watch over the heart is a very difficult thing. And how tiresome this will be to your hearts if your faith is counterfeit. Sign of counterfeit faith. I mean, that's, that's preaching. It wasn't just Jeremiah Burroughs. The great uh, evangelist, Joseph Elaine, similarly preached to this issue of counterfeit faith, and he said, there is no surer evidence of an unconverted state than to have the things of the world uppermost in our aim, uppermost in our love, uppermost in our estimation. With the sound convert, the one who has genuine faith, Christ has supremacy. How dear is the name of Jesus to the one with genuine faith. How precious is the favor of Christ to the one who has genuine faith. The name of Jesus is engraved upon the heart of the one with genuine faith. And in a pretty jarring proclamation from Pastor Ralph Venning, one of Scotland's great preachers in the 1600s, he announced this in one of his messages. Now you got to remember, this is a different time and era. They did different things for pastimes, right? Hawking means like bird hunting, just so you know. It says, Be ashamed, you who spend so much time in reading of romances, you who spend so much time in adorning your outer person, who spend so much time hawking and hunting in consulting the law to ensure your outward state in the world is good. Be ashamed that you spend so little time in search of this, whether you are an heir of glory or not. Whether you be in the way that leads to heaven or that way which will land you in darkness forever. You who judge this below you whether you will be in heaven or whether you will descend into hell, 
You who judge this unworthy of your pains, unworthy of any part or minute of your time, it is probable in God's account that you have judged yourself unworthy of an everlasting life so that you shall have no lot with God's people in this matter. And the people of sitting under these preachers heard this consistently, consistently, consistently. And finally, William Guthrie, author of one of my favorite books called The Sinfulness of Sin, looked out at a society of people all claiming to profess faith in Christ and said this, Among the many who seem to profess the gospel, how few practice it. In words they confess God, but in works they deny Him. They are lovers of pleasure and lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. And this, for Guthrie, is the epitome or the description of counterfeit faith. So again, what about you? Is your faith real Or is it counterfeit? What will Christ say to you on that day? Verse 22, you see that, right? On that day. On that day when the wheat is brought into the barn and the chaff is burned. On that day when the sheep are separated from the goats. On that day when the wheat is separated from the tares. What will Christ say to you on that day? What will be revealed about you on that day when you appear alone before the judgment seat of Christ when your heart is laid bare before him on that day when all of your earthly confidences all of your phony pretenses all of your masks all of your walls all of your fakery is stripped away from you when all the excuses are cast aside and shown for the absolute and utter foolishness that they are and you cry out Lord, Lord What will you appeal to on that day? The ones who are standing before Jesus in our text, in their absolute and utter terror, point to a few things. And the first thing they say is, Jesus, we spoke for you. We delivered prophetic messages and called on others to listen to you. We called on others to be holy. Sure, that might be the case. But what about you? What about your commitment to holiness? Doing the, the preaching thing, as long as I've been doing it, one of, the, one of the common things I will hear every so often after a message is, oh man, if only so-and-so were here to have heard that message. And I guess that's fine to say, so long as whatever the word was being whatever the word of God is declaring, first lands upon you. First inspires your pursuit of holiness. Because it is your life that you must give an account to the Lord for. And if you're regularly thinking through sermons about how other people ought to respond to the preached word, set that aside from now, for now and focus on your share in Christ. Focus on your faith in Christ. Because after all, King Saul prophesied. Balaam the donkey prophesied. Caiaphas the high priest during the ministry of Christ prophesied. But guess what? None of them possessed a genuine faith. Are you like one of them? 
able to go out and do all of the external things, say all the right words, but internally you've been focused on just making sure others do things without actually taking care of whether you have genuine faith or not. Those who live in such a way will hear those words of Jesus, I never knew you. Those in front of Jesus also made other appeals, saying, did we not cast out demons in your name? Again, look what we did in your name. Look what we did for others in your name. Didn't we expel and drive out and force away demons in your name? And also, didn't we also do mighty works in your name? Mighty works meaning miracles. Didn't we do miracles in your name? Sure, perhaps, but so did Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot also drove out demons and did mighty works when, the disciples, when Jesus sent the disciples into the towns two by two. When they were given authority, according to Matthew 10, to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cleanse lepers and cast out demons. And yet Judas was, according to Jesus, the son of destruction in John 17, 12. Or in older English, the son of perdition. This phrase means Judas is one who is damned as he lives. It's a very strong phrase. And Judas was one who walked with Jesus during the earthly ministry of of Christ. Judas was one who most likely had a good grasp of who Jesus was and who Jesus claimed to be and understood the things that Jesus taught, but he ultimately denied it. And instead of bearing the fruit of a truly repentant believer, Judas bore thorns and thistles. So you see, you can be one who does mighty works in his name and yet bears nothing but thorns and thistles and who will ultimately hear the words of Jesus on that day, I never knew you. But those in the text, standing before Jesus on this day of judgment, they appeal to their good deeds, expecting an affirmative answer from Jesus. We've been good people, Jesus. The problem is they were deceived. They never truly believed. You see, we don't get to, to uh, heaven, we don't come to true saving faith, or we don't, we don't win God's affection by our good deeds. These people thought that their good deeds was all that they needed. But they never focused on whether they had real faith, genuine faith. Their faith was a counterfeit faith. And now they must hear these most awful and terrible of words, I never knew you depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. And even in our era, it is possible, and according to Jesus, indeed even common, for people to openly profess faith, to be adored as a servant of Jesus Christ, to have a great name, to have a humongous global worldwide ministry, for example, but all the while possess a corrupt heart, an unrenewed heart, all the while working iniquity in the dark places and the dark recesses of your life, all the while practicing sin and hiding it under a cloak of visible pretended righteousness. You see, it is not only wolves who, who cloak themselves in sheepskin, but there are also many dogs who cloak themselves as sheep as well. Not vicious, not seeking to hurt and harm people, not seeking to rob the church or rob people of anything, but they're just simply dogs who put sheep's clothing on. 
If you are living in known sin, harboring that sin, giving it safe quarter in your heart, living peaceably with it, continually returning to it rather than warring against it, making it your practice, and then trying to hide it from others, such habits ought to strip you of any pretense. If the external appearance of righteousness in your life hides from others sin that you ought to be striving to eliminate in your life, sin that you've been commanded in Scripture to put to death, to do all in your power by the Spirit in you to obey the will of the Father, then you are in danger. You are in danger. You are in danger right now at this very moment of those most devastating words of our Lord. I don't know you. Perhaps he doesn't know you. Perhaps you don't truly know him. I mean, how, after all, how can anyone who truly loves and knows Jesus, who are known by Jesus and have the Holy Spirit living in them, pour more effort into cloaking and hiding their sin than killing it? How can we put more effort into hiding our sin under a veneer of righteousness rather than seeking help from God, seeking help from Christ, seeking help from your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith to leave it behind in favor of running to Him, running to Jesus, your greatest joy and treasure? What do you love most? If it's sin, if it's the world, if it's anything other than Jesus, you are in danger. You were in danger of hearing those words, I never knew you. So what are some of the characteristics? What are some of the things that we could say are signs of a faith that will ultimately be exposed on the day of judgment as false? There could be a huge list, but I just put a few of them down here. First, and most commonly, and the one that we are consistently speaking to, is this idea, do you hope to win salvation and favor with God by appealing to your works? Do you hope that by your goodness, that somehow, some way, God will love you more? Do you appeal to the assumption that you are a good person? Do you believe that your merits will somehow lead you into, the, into being included in the Lord's eternal kingdom? This is the way the world thinks about faith. If I'm a good person, God will love me. If I'm a good person, God will let me in. But here's the truth. There are no good people, only Jesus. And to believe that you're good enough to enter into the kingdom of God by your works is a counterfeit faith. All of us who are saved are saved in the same way. We are saved by the grace of God through genuine and true faith in Him. And the works that come are a byproduct of genuine faith, They don't save you, but they evidence that your faith is real. So, examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Look at your life. Look at the place Christ holds in your life and decide. Another characteristic could be, have you professed faith in Jesus while holding on to your former lovers? By lovers, I mean 
when you were unsaved, before you turned to Christ, each and every one of us was taken in by worldly lovers, by sinful pleasures, by sinful desires and sinful wants. When you came to Jesus, did you truly count the cost? Jesus said, count the cost before coming to me. Meaning, sit down and figure it all out. Look at what Jesus wants and then decide if you're willing to take up that, his, his terms. Because there are so many who come to Jesus who haven't counted the cost, who haven't looked at the words of Christ when he says, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. But no, they don't. They come to Christ and they still, rather than repudiating and leaving the old lovers behind, they retain them. They sprinkle a little bit of Jesus dust on their life while striving to retain a partnership with lawlessness and with darkness and with the devil. Did you ever truly turn from your sins in repentance? Or did you in your craftiness find ways to hold on to your beloved sins, to justify those beloved sins, and to practice those beloved sins? If so, this is a sign of counterfeit faith. You've never truly repented and turned to Christ. You haven't truly given everything over to Christ. You have not truly denied yourself and taken up your cross and followed him. You've never counted the cost. You simply have convinced yourself that you have. Another would be, have you professed faith in Jesus but strive to be friends with the world at the same time? Does the world dictate what you believe Scripture teaches rather than simply hearing believing and obeying what the text clearly and actually declares. See, James, clear, James rebuked this type of attitude saying in James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All those congregations who are filled with professing believers who, lets, who let the world's value system dictate what they believe Scripture teaches, who let the world's values dictate what they do and don't do and not God's Word, those who don't seek and strive to do the will of Christ's Father in heaven are in grave danger of a counterfeit faith. Because those who seek friendship with those who seek the approval of the world make themselves enemies of God. So are you one who professes faith but in actuality and reality are an enemy of God? Examine yourself. See, a counterfeit faith is one that never fully, never truly owns Christ as Lord and Savior. A counterfeit faith is one that never truly loves Christ as He is. He is our priest who saves us and intercedes for us. He is our prophet who declares the truth of God to us and commands us to obey it. And he is our king to whom we submit the entirety of our lives. Not some, not part, but the entirety of our lives. Counterfeit faith can be at rest and can be at peace while sin reigns in the heart. 
while that which God abhors, while that which God hates, while that which costs the death of his very own son finds no battle and no resistance in our heart. Counterfeit faith is content to befriend sin. Counterfeit faith is content to befriend that very thing that sets its sights on the murder of your own soul. Counterfeit faith will take only what they like what they like from Christ. Will accept those things that suit them. See, counterfeit faith loves the salvation bit. They love the promises of heaven but aren't so keen on this whole denial of self thing or this whole fight for holiness thing or this whole take up your cross or this whole making yourself a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God stuff. Genuine faith loves not only the grace of God and his free gift of salvation, but genuine faith also in gratitude for and love to God also takes upon itself the yoke of Christ. Genuine faith takes up the command of Christ, takes up the cross of Christ, and lives for Christ. Counterfeit faith despises the light of accountability and favors the maintenance of sin. Counterfeit faith loves the appeasing of fleshly passions and desires. Counterfeit faith does not like to hear that their passions are sinful when Scripture declares them to be sinful. Counterfeit faith will therefore work to justify and distort God's word. Counterfeit faith will eliminate relationships that call on them to heartily obey Christ's word. Counterfeit faith will not and does not appreciate when their sin is named and called out as sin. And that's different than the genuine believer, than the one with genuine faith, isn't it? The genuine believer, on the other hand, wants their sin gone. They grieve and they mourn over the sin that is present in their lives. That's exactly what Jesus taught in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. And what he meant there is mourn over the sin in their lives. There's no peace with their sin. There is a mourning and a grief over it. And those who hate their sin and mourn over their sin and battle against their sin, look at the promise, they will be comforted. You throw yourself, the genuine believer throws themselves at the feet of Christ and pleads for power to battle against it. The genuine believer in their hatred for sin and desire for a sanctified and holy heart cry out with King David who wrote in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting see a counterfeit faith when it all comes down to it has never been entirely devoted to christ a counterfeit faith never fully gave itself over to christ but instead held back sin that they love as sweet making secret exceptions for that sin counterfeit faith holds portions of life back from christ Either Christ is your absolute Lord or he is not. Either you are with Christ or you are against him. Either he is your goal or he is your enemy. Examine yourself. Test yourself. Because 
there are so many deceived and counterfeit professors of faith who think that they will spend an eternity with Christ and who yet refuse to stop actively sinning against the Lord that they profess to love. They refuse to quit the practice of sin in favor of a dogged determination to obey Christ, to pursue Christ, to live for Christ, to love Him with the totality of their being. From those who refuse to heed Christ's command for unity and forgiveness, to those who enjoy promoting strife and discord, who spend their days sowing seeds of division among God's people as they speak their poison to person after person. These, said Jude in Jude 19, it is these who cause division. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Are you devoid of the Spirit? Are you one of those ones that picks up the phone and did you hear about this and did you hear about that and you hear what they're doing over there and you hear what they're doing over there and hoping to sow seeds of discord among God's people? The text tells here that you are devoid of the Spirit. These are common traits among professing Christians, aren't they? Quarrelsome, divisive, and unforgiving. These are signs of a counterfeit faith if they are things that find peaceful rest in you. And the list could go on. Resting in bitterness, thievery, idolatry, pride, all of these things, if they find no battle in you as they take up space in you, that's a sign of counterfeit faith. And one of the things I see just, you know, I I bring this up a lot because it seems like it's just everywhere. The sexual ethic of the world is just so pervasive in every single area of life And it seems like the sexual ethic of Christians in the church is so counter to what God actually teaches. It's almost, it's staggering to me. The amount of people who claim to love Jesus and then proceed to both live with and sleep with people who aren't their spouse is unbelievable to me. The Lord has been clear in Scripture. The Lord has been clear about sexuality and His proper place, time and place for it, and yet so many who profess to be saved, so many who profess love for Jesus openly flaunt and justify their disobedience to and their rebellion against the God they profess in this area. This is a sign of counterfeit faith. To so flagrantly pursue your fleshly gratification and then to distort Scripture to convince yourself it's permissible. May it never be that you who do such things, not just in the area of sexuality, but in general, may it never be that those of us or those of you anywhere who pursue fleshly gratification and then distort Scripture to convince yourself that what you're doing is permissible, even though Scripture clearly teaches that it's not, may it never be that you believe you are saved. Instead, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I've never really understood why people do this. I've never really understood why people claim to love Jesus and then refuse to obey him. 
Maybe it's just me, but I've always assumed that if you're going to hitch yourself or hitch your wagon to a person, a movement, or a team that you actually believe in and adhere to the values, the lifestyle, the direction, the philosophy, the rules of that person, movement, or team. But for some reason, when it comes to Christ, it seems that so many claim to love him, but really don't, at least in the way that he defines love. And how does Christ define love? If you love me, you will do what I command. That is John 17. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you want to know what Jesus commands, read the New Testament. It's all there. And the Apostle John said the same thing. Whoever says he abides in him, that's abides in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Meaning ought to obey and follow and imitate Jesus. Jesus here said that the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. The one who truly repents of their sin, truly turning away from it, and turns to Jesus in faith, in genuine faith. And then out of that faith, strives and labors to live a holy life of obedience, which is the result of a true and saving faith, they will be saved. And if this is not you, if you have no desire to fight for holiness, no desire or uh, uh, no fight in you to obey his word, then please stop claiming to love him because you don't. You love you. The God you serve is yourself. You have set yourself on the throne of your own heart. And you must decide, all of us must decide, am I in or am I out? Will I go on in the idolatry of self or will I truly submit to Jesus? Will I love with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind and with all my strength the most beautiful person in the history of the world, Jesus? Or will I continue to serve myself? One of these leads to the eternal joy of the Master. The other leads to eternal damnation. This is not a joke. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the fruit that Jesus expects from his disciples, from any who claim him as Savior, is obedience to the will of the Father in heaven, which is exactly the same as the will of Christ our Lord. Those who truly believe in the Son will endeavor in the power of the Spirit in gratitude for the grace of God that has been poured out upon them to obey and live for Jesus. So is your profession of faith, your profession of belief and trust in Christ one that leads you to laboring and fighting to do the will of your Father in heaven? This is not to say that you're going to be perfect in your obedience. You will not. You will be engaged in a lifelong battle against sin. And that's the, that's the common lot of all of us. We are engaged in a lifelong battle against sin. But the great desire, the great effort, the great goal of our lives is to live for Christ. To avoid any distortions of Scripture to justify our sin. 
The great goal of our lives is simply to seek Him and obey Him. This is important for us to get because the day is coming. The day is fast approaching when oh so many will hear from Christ that I never knew you. And note, this will be declared. You see that? It says, He will declare. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in verse 23, and then I will declare to them. That, idea, that word there carries the idea of an open confession, an open proclamation before other people, before others. The Lord Jesus Christ will publicly one day proclaim and declare in the sight of all that he never knew you, provided if your faith is counterfeit. And on that day, the vain flattery with which people deceive themselves will be halted. Their avoidance of the narrow gate and the narrow road will be revealed as the greatest mistake they have ever made. As their weeping and their wailing fill the space. As they cry out, I wish I had never been born. As they cry out, oh, let the mountains fall upon me as they are thrown into the lake of fire to suffer the righteous, just wrath of the God they rejected and rebelled against through their life. The eternal penalty for their rebellion against God. And they will think back to the cries and the exhortations of those who called them to the narrow gate. Who called them to the narrow gate. And they will despise themselves for having refused to listen. So again, is your faith genuine Or is it counterfeit? On that day, will Jesus remove a false sheepskin and reveal you to be a dog? Will he declare to you, get away from me, you are no guest in my house, you have never been a part of my family, you have always been a worker of lawlessness, you have always lived in defiance to the Father in heaven's will. If that is you this morning, I just want to say to you, I hold out a blessing for you right now. Because God holds out to you once again the offer of true and genuine salvation. God holds out to you the offer of eternal life by grace through genuine faith in Him. God holds out to you the offer of eternal life with Him. Will you truly believe? Will you truly locate the narrow gate Enter in by it and walk the narrow path. Would you truly, on this day, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? And listen, I know, and you know, we all know that our flesh is going to fight us every step of the way. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that living for Jesus, obeying Jesus, doing the will of the Father who is in heaven, is no robbery of joy. In fact, the very opposite is true. A life of obedience to the Lord is your greatest joy and your greatest delight. So Joseph Elaine, the prophet, or the the Puritan, he'll close our time together this morning. Will you have Christ in all his relations to be yours? Your king, your priest, your prophet. Will you have him and bear his cross? Do not take Christ without consideration, but sit down first and count the cost. Will you lay all at his feet? 
Will you be content to run all dangers, difficulties, and earthly hazards with him? Will you take up your lot with him wherever it may lead? Will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? Are you deliberately, understandingly, and freely determined to cleave to him in all times and through all conditions? If so, you will never perish, but you have passed from death to life. And this leads to the true believer panting for grace and glory. As he has a crown incorruptible in view, his heart is set in him to seek the Lord. He first seeks the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and religion and faith is no longer a casual matter to him, but his main care. Before, the world had sway with him. He would do more for gain than godliness, more to please his friends or his flesh than the God who made him. And God stood by till the world was first served. But now, but now, everything else stands by. And he hates his father and mother and life and all in comparison to Christ. Christ is worth loving with all your soul, all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. Do you? Will you? Father, we thank you, and we praise you for the blessing and the grace of these exhortations held out to us in your word. Father, we understand that those who enter through the narrow gate and walk the narrow road are few. We know that there are so many who confess and profess faith in Jesus Christ, but on that day when you examine their hearts, you will note that Christ held 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th spot, that Christ was the one that that particular heart made stand to the side while they figured out everything else and worked on what they thought were the more important issues of life. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize that that's just unacceptable and that doesn't cut it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would truly take root in us and cause us to look to Christ first. Bring us to the place where Christ is the pinnacle affection of our heart. That Christ is our source of joy, our source of delight, and that our whole lives are determined and focused on loving him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. May all the saints at Winona Gospel Church never, ever, ever have to hear those terrible words. But instead, may we hear when all is said and done, well done, enter into the joy of your master. We plead and we pray and we ask you for this in Jesus' wonderful name, our Lord Jesus, who is mighty to save those with genuine faith in him. Amen.